Uh, but I, I know being like, hey, be on my podcast that like. It was surprising, but I was like, to. I have nothing better to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the country doesn't have anything better. No, I mean, we're like, yeah. they got to listen to this. It's great. should do this again sometime we have a very special episode for you today because this week on our director series not only are we covering an incredible director but we have a wonderful director and filmmaker here with us today uh his name is dan fox he is a dear friend of mine uh and he is a big fan of our director that we're going to discuss this week christopher nolan uh dan fox has done a lot of amazing work including the ultra ego series the tom series sunshine in gable uh, and his most recent project was The Goal, a documentary about his work with photography. Uh, if you are further interested in that, you can check him out at dfox360 on Instagram. I am KitKat, and the illustrious Mark Robb is here as well. Uh, we do want to talk to Dan about his career as a filmmaker, um, but then also we will pivot to the illustrious Christopher Nolan um, a little bit down the line. But Dan, so just to... Yeah. You know, just to go a little bit more just about your history. So um, we we should so the audience at large consider you knowing a director, a photographer, but an actor as well. I, I did catch Gable. and I, I did see where you did make a, a guest appearance in there. Um, so. Oh, no. <laughs> you're just building oh, up on MVB. Oh, he acts. Oh, he acts. What was the question? I'm sorry. Oh, no. I said you, you're building up the IMDb already. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so talk a little bit just, just about you being a filmmaker specifically. Um, I want to get your sort of insight of what your um, your sort of thought process is in the filmmaking process and writing process. But to go even further outside of that, a little bit down the line. Um, I guess we're going to do some time jumps in honor of Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I know. Really in with the genre. Exactly. Can you talk about sort of your kind of your love of filmmaking? Um, When you were growing up as a kid, was it something that you envisioned yourself doing or was it something that you kind of just grasped onto recently? Sure, sure. Um, Well, when I was a kid, I mean... I had a very uh, interesting upbringing in that my parents, my 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 father is a actually was actually a director of theater and and was very well versed in the arts and all that. And he um he and my mom are very like uh, supportive, very loving, very uh, forward thinking, and they were very like uh, very adamant that I had to watch all the stuff they grew up with uh, growing up, like when they were like older but like the the big classics that they thought they should do early so like i remember often it'd be at my grandparents they would be like sit down we're going to blockbusters when that was a thing and we're gonna oh, get man. Uh, star out for wars. blockbuster yeah yeah we're gonna grab you the original star wars series and i'm like four or five years old and you're gonna watch like the greatest sci-fi saga ever made at the time <laughs> still probably 
And uh, they showed me that. And then, like, we're on the Cape and, like, we're going to show you Jaws, one of the greatest movies ever made. And I'm like, I'm five and we're at the Cape. That's a terrible idea. But, (laughs) but, um, you know, it kind of shaped me into, like, these ideas of, like, these practically, like, the idea of practical effects and catching everything in camera. I was always, even as a kid when you don't understand all that, I was just mesmerized by how grand uh, of a story you can tell. on camera and just doing it all practically and and then if you have good characters and a good set piece and a good mind towards it you can just accomplish these things that you really can't see anywhere else um but i didn't i didn't actually think of myself as a director back then i really like every like a lot of kids and their dad i i i was following my dad's path and i wanted to be an actor at first Uh, my dad grew up being an actor then he went into directing and all that he has equity and all that and he um he shaped me, and I went to college actually as a theater major. I was I was going to be an actor first, um, which did uh, come over. In it. But eventually, I I met a friend of mine, uh, my friend Joe, who actually helps me make the movies. In the credits, you'll see his name often as editor. He's an actor, um, and he was making movies when we went to college. I met him there, and I kind of caught the bug from there and took it on my own. And then we reconnected and started making our own. Um, it was really just a uh, like, that's really cool. I love what you're doing. I want to try it myself kind of thing. And I think it was very nice that eventually uh, we were able to bring it full circle and uh, start working together. Um, I would I, I would like to give a, a big shout out to yeah. Joe, Joe because I know Joe. I've never, like, hung out with Joe, so I did not feel comfortable being like, also, Joe, would you like to come on our podcast? Yeah. I'm sorry, Joe. Please don't take it personally. He doesn't. He's, he's tired right now. It's been a long day for us both. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, we've worked together on every movie, and it's been uh, really a delight uh, as we've gone on. And it's all amateur, obviously, but we've gotten better with each one. And we've started using new techniques and new equipment and uh, just studying uh, different kinds of films. We, we have, between the two of us, I think, over a thousand DVDs, Blu-rays that we watch and study and take note we watch movies and we often make comments like we kind of see it in a different way because we're like oh we know how that was done or we could use that in our next thing or whatever mm-hmm. um and it's not always me directing sometimes joe uh, is the director sometimes we co-direct sometimes i produce you know it, it, it really depends on the project um the only one that joe wasn't involved in is is the le- latest one the goal which was more of a uh, documentary for myself which he's interviewed in heavily Yes, yeah, he is. He is in it, so that that was a big part. He's a big part of my life. Um, but yeah, that that's kind of how my my story is. That I started off wanting to be an actor, and you know, in some capacity, still do, still star in my movies, but I don't do it on stage too much. But I really took a liking to to camera work and and filmmaking, and then from there went into photography. So, can you talk to the audience a little bit about? Uh, your most recent creation, the goal. Um, yeah. I watched it and I did think it was pretty interesting. The what you wanted to achieve with it, but can you talk a little bit about the goal itself? Like the plot, you mean? Just the well, overall yeah. idea. Yeah, just the overall idea with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, as stated, actually in the movie itself, I, I I had landed a few photography gigs and um, and I was I don't live in the, in Boston and it takes place in Boston. And I, I had landed a few gigs in one week and I kind of realized I didn't want to uh, be going back and forth every day. I'd be exhausted. I wouldn't be getting the work done. And uh, 
So I decided to stay with a friend. And then from there, I was talking to a coworker and she was like, you should really like, you know, if you're going to take photos and you, you, you want to do movies too, you make movies, you should, you should film it. And I, and I had never made a video like that before, but I had been watching them as like a, as photographers, videographers do, they, they usually go on YouTube and become YouTubers and make movies. And I, I really enjoyed that content. So I wanted to try it myself. And I don't usually speak to my love of photography, so I thought that was a good chance. So I went to the city for one week and set up this whole idea, like a personal goal for myself, as the title suggests, to take 5,000 photos that I could edit in one week. Or no, uh, 5,000 photos in one week, whether I was going to edit them or not, I don't know, but 5,000 photos that were an attempt at an actual photo. And it was really fun. It was a whole different kind of uh, stuff. I mean, cats in it. I I shot with Catherine and I went to a piano bar. That was really cool. There was like a cosplay photography. There was a show I had worked for. It was a wide variety of uh, different kinds of shoots that I could do. And I was really enjoying it. And uh, the movie kind of follows that journey and just starting my uh, attempt at putting more stuff out on YouTube, starting with this movie. Um. And I learned a lot. You know, that was the whole point was that to go out there and try something different. So I was very, uh, very excited about that. A little bit more about your um, about the photography aspect and also, you know, about you mm-hmm. directing and co-directing your projects. Is it kind of like mm-hmm. the chicken and the egg thing where it's like you got into photography and then sort of naturally pivoted to directing or was directing first then you shifted to photography uh it was definitely filmmaking first uh i I didn't actually start taking photos till much later in the filmmaking by then i had take i had made uh the original three alter egos and i had made a few tom movies and uh gable and i actually remember uh the first on set photo i took for a film was during Sunshine Inn, which was my uh, seventh film, I think. And I just kind of realized, like, my camera at that point, the one I still use today, had that capacity. And I thought, I'm really not getting my money's worth if I don't use that, too. Um, so I started taking photos while I was filming and then started doing it separately from the filming. But it was definitely film first and then photos. But then as that went on... Um, it really became like a cycle, you know, like an ongoing mm-hmm. thing that like the photos influenced the video and the video influenced the photo. And I was learning from each other and applying it to each one. Um, it was a really uh, organic kind of process that I, I, I never set out to be like, this is how it's going to happen. Uh, I never really looked at it that way. Um, but it was uh, to my great, uh, uh, to my great relief, uh, a natural process that just kind of happened that I really am uh, thankful for that I was able to pick up, you know, the lessons from each. Um, I think the biggest examples of these, these aren't public domain, but uh, the Alter Ego series, the last one especially, is the most cinematic movie I've ever made. Uh, and it really, and I was taking photos on set. Uh, there's a lot of photos on my Instagram of like what we were doing on set and the photos match the footage of the film, which was very rewarding. And then to bring that into you uh, to a, uh, I'm sorry, um, the goal, uh, which was mm-hmm. more of a photo based video was kind of like the next step for that to actually be able to blend the two. So hopefully seamlessly, you know, uh, but they definitely influence each other at this point. 
Cool, man. Um, now, on your YouTube, um, the only movie that I saw was available was Gable. Um, how is that your... In, it sounds like you've already done seven total movies. Is that correct? Uh, at this point, uh, seven... I think it's actually more like... Ten? Ten, eleven. I, I've, I actually count... There's a few specials, too. They're not quite necessarily movies. They're more episodic in the Tom series. Um, there's a lot of different things. Uh, a few reasons why not all of them are on YouTube. Um one, the earlier stuff is not quite up to par, not something I really want to put out there anymore. Uh, we also weren't always using our own music. We weren't making any money off of it, but you can't post that stuff if you're not using your own music. So it was really just watch it if you're our friends. Uh, Gable does use original music made by a friend of mine. Uh, the Goal uses royalty-free music from a website. Uh, and there are plans now going forward once it's safe to go outside again and we start filming again to start using music from that website in our movie so we can start getting more stuff out there um when we started this it didn't really come off as anything to like show to the wide like internet world it was more like i want to make this for me and my friends and we're still kind of at that point but we're starting to very much get away from that you know with the goal and with the gable those are the two that are public domain but there's going to be a lot more there's future projects that are already written that are planned there's like i think five new movies in the works and two a few of them are tied to past projects but i think three of them are all going to be newer projects that can use uh new uh royalty free music that we're going to put out there so for our listeners who let's say they have an itch to get into the filmmaking game mm -hmm. even talking about music licensing um, mm -hmm. I'm assuming a lot of people didn't even consider that when making when making projects. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the hurdles that you've uh, had through your uh, career? I mean, it's a career. So hey, can you talk about it. some of those hurdles a little bit more? Yeah, because... I mean, I mean it, it, of course, everyone's going to be different. I think the first thing I've always preached um, when I started making my first movie was don't wait. Um, never, never, if you have a camera and you have the ability to write a script, I mean, we have phones now, you can do it on that. There's, if you're into it and you want to try it and you want to do it, there's really nothing stopping you. Uh, it, it's, it's, you watch my first movie, I had a dinky little, uh, handheld, a script and like a very, no budget. I was making it when I was still in college, but I did it because I had a story. Um, and I think... And, and trust me, back then, there were so many people that were like, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. You're not making money off this. This isn't going to get you anywhere. I don't understand what he's doing. Um, and that persists a while, and that can be so stressful and so disheartening. Um, there were many a times I wanted to stop because no one was paying attention. No one cared. That's what it felt like. But... I kept at it because I wanted to do it. You know, it, it's never been a question of becoming famous or making money or getting promoted or anything like that. It's, it's, it's as a, any artist will tell you, it's because you want to do it. And if that's something you have, that's enough. Um, and I learned that over the years. And finally, I mean, I, I'm nowhere close to perfect and I'm nowhere close to uh, done. But with the last few movies, there's been a lot more attention with the photography in play, too. I, I don't hear that anymore. Uh, people have stopped asking why I'm doing it. 
more along the lines of what are you doing next, which is very rewarding. So I've made it that far, at least. But there were times in the first three movies, especially where I was like, maybe I'm not doing the right thing. Maybe I should have waited. Maybe I should try harder. Maybe I, you know, because people kept questioning it. Um, and, and, and your own self-doubt and your own mind can play into it. Um, it's not always fun. You know, it's not always like, well, this is going to go well. In fact, I've had movies that, you know, uh, people didn't like, you know, and and, and that's OK. That's film. We're going to go over that later. But like, but you don't stop and um i really i i really think the hurdle that i faced first and foremost is coming from myself um Mm -hmm. sometimes because you you like everyone else we self-doubt and we we question whether we're doing the right thing and i face that with photography too sometimes i'll I'll post a photo on instagram and it won't get the attention i wanted to because i like it so much and I think like, oh, what's the point? No one cares. I'm never going to make it that far. But you, eventually you just got to turn all that off and be like, no. Um, technical wise, in terms of hurdles, you know, yeah, the music's a big thing. Um, I can't post any of my movies really besides a few because at the time we didn't know how to get them, you know, and we didn't have the money to get the music we need. I have that money enough now that I that I can start putting music royalty free or whatever in that gable was lucky because i had a friend who actually composes so he puts his own music in it um but he's in california now so i can't reach out to him about that um so you always i just i kept finding a way you know and yeah Mm -hmm. these movies i can't post them on youtube and that's sad because they've gotten really good but 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 at the same time it's not like i'm wasting my time or they're not for nothing they're still made and people still saw them in fact uh, the last movie I made, Alter Ego Unity, uh, had the biggest premiere I've ever had in my life, and people were awestruck. I mean, there's photos of just a sold out, not sold out, we didn't pay, pay permission, but every seat was filled in about a, I think it was like a 80, 90 seat uh, room. And that felt nice. really good. And it was just all friends and people I'd met along the way that had seen these movies, or were curious enough, and wanted to watch it. By the end of it, people were asking if they could be in the next one. Um, nice. And that felt really I'm still good. waiting that, on my phone call. I assume well, I just got lost it. in the mail. There are like five new movies coming. Like, you're, you're getting there. <laughs> we have a lot. <laughs> Don't planned. gas her up. Don't we gas have one her. script already written. We have one script already written. We have like three others in the work right now. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a fun. It's a good time to write and just get that going. Um. But, you know, I think the, the biggest thing I can say about hurdles and, and, and things that get in your way is find a way to get past them. If you're really that passionate about it, then you don't stop. Um, you find what you got to do. You bite the bullets when you need to. If you can't have your own music, then host your own premiere. You know, you're not going to post it on YouTube, then host your own premiere somewhere. You know, and that's what we we did for a while. And that's what we still do. But we also now are starting to be able to gradually, slowly post some stuff, you know. And that feels really I mean, good. If you're trying to premiere a film now, maybe have a Zoom premiere. I don't know. I'm not your mom. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. maintain some, some social exactly. distancing. at. Pre- yeah. But the other part, the other thing I would say is, you know, be patient. You know, don't don't rush it. Um, obviously, if you have the capacity, do it. But do it right and do it well. You know, and, and if you have the passion, you're going to. Um, mm-hmm. It's just you got to put in the work. I don't think people, even my worst movies, you know, like people don't see what goes into them. You know, my first three movies were 
by comparison now, not great, but still a lot of work went into making them. You know, you think about it, you, you, you write the thing. You have Joe look over the second draft. You approve the third draft. You cast it. You start scheduling. You pay for props. You find mm-hmm. location. Film it. You, you and you face all the technical issues, and then and then when it's all filmed, that feels great. But then you got to edit it, and editing is its own monster. Joe and I spend like nights up to midnight uh, looking over stuff and trying to figure it out. It's not fair to me also to just say it's all me because Joe's the editor and Joe uh, does magic with editing. He's gotten as good as uh, as I have at directing as he is with editing, and it's really it's so much work and it's so tiresome after a while. But it's always going to be worth it when you have a two-hour movie that you made yourself. Um, and at this point, mm-hmm. I have a few of those. Um, and that and that feels pretty good. And I, I would say to the people who want to get into it, it it's worth it, you know? Uh, well, good, congrats on the, the, the success you have achieved so far. And definitely cool. good luck in the future for... The success that's to come, man. Um, I definitely appreciate you talking about, you know, kind of grinding it out, um, you know, sort of sticking to it even when you have naysayers. Um, I know for photography, I know specifically, like, um, I, the funny thing is, like, I, I talked to this creator, like, a a couple of months ago, I think it was last year, and they kind of have this thing where it's like, uh, they if they make art eventually they kind of grow to hate it and Mm -hmm. i i never got like that with my writing but photography like there's tons of things that i used to like but then i don't necessarily like anymore so i can understand kind of hurdle that would be so definitely keep grinding out with that um now keeping with your filmmaking um because like i said i did see gable um but you know that was you know down the line for your filmmaking career can that you talk a, a little bit? Middle, honestly, yeah. Middle. But okay. yeah. yeah, yeah, sorry. Can you talk about your um, the inspirations for your latest work and how you actually go into the mode of like script uh, script writing and yeah. producing and developing? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I I I think I I should explain something in terms of my latest. Uh, you know films uh the alter ego series uh the alter ego series was my first three movies and we thought it was going to be a trilogy and then uh and we stopped it at three um and then we went on to other things three years later joe and i were talking during the filming of another movie and we said wait we have a really good idea to bring it back and to actually finish it uh the third movie was good, but some people, including myself, were not quite satisfied with how it ended. We felt like we owed it to the small group of people who had watched it that and ourselves, you know, that that we 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 had the potential for a better ending. Mm-hmm. So so we we went back and we wrote a new movie with a kind of like a soft reboot, which was a very big thing that was being done at the time. And we wrote uh still three, is. it still is, yeah. But we we want our piece of the cake and we we wrote this this idea of like a few years passed and the characters have gone through different stuff and we added a new character and 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 premiered that and then we ended it with a big cliffhanger without going into too much details you know we do the classic oh the bad guy from the originals isn't dead and she's gonna be the villain of the last movie um <laughs> at the very mm-hmm. last minute 
And uh, then we went into the fifth one, which is my latest movie, Alter Ego Unity. And without a doubt, uh, for me, that is the single greatest uh, reward from a film I ever uh, received because of the fact that it really was a culmination of everything we had done so far. Um, now, going into it, you know, we, we, we knew uh, ideas when we had finished the fourth movie of how, what we wanted to be. I started writing it, and it was probably the smoothest, uh, the smoothest writing I've ever had. That doesn't always happen. You know, sometimes when you're writing a script, it's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. But I kind of just knew what I wanted that one to be, and it was very laid out and very uh, thematic and very, uh, very powerful. You know, I found myself feeling like this was how uh, my first trilogy, my first series should end. Um, so we wrote it. Uh, it was actually me, Joe, and our lead, Anthony, who plays uh, the lead character, and he he helped us write it, too. And, and we had a very uh, long talk about what it was going to be and what we wanted the characters to be. I, I, I want not only my audience to be happy, but I want my actors to be happy with it at this point. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so that was the writing stage. Production stage, before that even, too, the last thing we did with this movie was actually the title. Um, one thing people don't always get is that sometimes you don't have the title of the movie right off the bat. We knew it was going to be called Alter Ego something, like they all were, but we didn't know what it was. And we looked at the themes and all that, and uh, Unity finally came to the fruition. But there were, like, a list of titles. So that's a little thing that people don't think about, that, like, sometimes the title isn't always there. there. Well, Nancy Myers, who makes a lot of romance movies, uh, mm -hmm. doesn't even title her own movies. Mm -hmm. They are mm -hmm. they are all untitled Nancy Myers project yep. Yep. that are eventually, hopefully, named yep. by someone else. I think I think it was actually the first time I ever wrote the script before I wrote the title, and I liked that because the, then the script actually dictated what the title should be. Um, so mm -hmm. that was an interesting change of pace, you know and then in terms of uh production you know we 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 we, we really tried to one-up it everything uh in a, in a positive way the, the the thing was is as cheesy as it sounded we knew this was the end of a certain chapter of our filmmaking careers uh, not the mm -hmm. end of the filmmaking but it was a phase it was it was it was going to be the end, not only of Alter Ego, but like it was almost like in Marvel when you have phases. It felt like the end of our first phase because this point we're at, I think it was like, a, uh, I don't know. I, I, I've lost count at this point, but it, it was a good number of movies. The same people were seeing it. We knew more people would probably see this one. And we wanted to actually put into practice everything we'd learned. Um, mm -hmm. So we wrote it big and then we executed it big. Now... This was a unique thing, too, because going back to every other movie we've ever made, we always went into rewrites during the process because it was not going as we expected. Always disheartening. Not always a bad thing, but it was always disheartening because, you know, you write it out and then because usually because of scheduling or some kind of life event, we can't get it exactly as we had on the paper. So Joe and I would have to have a meeting and decide how we wanted to rewrite it so we could actually get it done always happened in uh in every movie we made uh whether it be the three alter egos the toms gable sunshine or the 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 fourth alter ego but somehow when it came to five um and i think this is a testament to a few things we actually didn't rewrite a thing um what we had was exactly as we wrote it 
And I think that comes from, first of all, we were working with a much smaller cast of the characters that we've mm-hmm. been working with for a while. They all knew who we were. We all knew who we were. And they were all invested in it at this point. You know, all of them had played these roles before and they were all ready to go. Um, and I and I can't believe how well they did. Like the performances were some of the best I'd ever gone. Um, and I think they kind of felt it. You know, we never advertised that it was going to be the end until it actually was shown. And I think everyone just kind of knew that this was going to be something that we needed to do for us. So they were committed more than I think anyone had ever been before. So scheduling wasn't so hard. Mm-hmm. Um. And it was just a smoother process than I'd ever expected, which, again, does not always happen. But for the last one, I'm proud it did. Um, uh, So much so that when we finally finished filming and we started editing, I think this alter ego is actually the only movie where we actually decided to take scenes out uh, because we could. And that being we have deleted scenes from the movie, entire scenes that we just decided didn't need to be in the movie. Mm hmm. that kind of felt a little more professional too, because you always hear about movies that have deleted scenes and we, 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 we hold that up now. Um, so we mm-hmm. did that. And then this was also the movie when it was finally done that I said, biggest showing we ever had. Um, but that is the last of the alter ego series. That is also the, hang on, I want to get this number right. Three, six, seven, eight, <laughs> nine, 10, 11th film that we had made in the course of five years and that was the first time that it happened. You know, that was the first time it had gone that smooth. And, you know, you can say whatever you want. It was the the cast. It was the crew. It was me. It was all that. I think there was a bit of luck involved, too. But it, the practice had been put in. Yeah. And 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 what works and what hadn't worked had been, had been weeded out. We were able to put into practice what we wanted to put into practice. Um but th- again, that comes from five years and 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 eleven movies under the belt, you know. So it, it, it takes time to get it to that level, and, and but it was worth it, you know. That and that's Sounds that's it. the pro- and that's the process of that. That's cool, man. Um, and before we pivot to Nolan, yeah, uh, specifically, I do want to get just one more question, just about sort of your overall style. Um, not even just Nolan, but can you talk about some of the filmmakers, um, whether it's a certain uh, company or group of producers or anything like that? Yeah. Can you talk about um, what uh, Hollywood players are actually influencing your career right now? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, well, I mean, we'll get into Nolan later. There's a story there, too, but Nolan is a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, it's cliche, but like I said... I grew up on Star Wars and Jaws, so I have to hand it to Spielberg and George Lucas um, for creating. You made two you th- made me watch Jaws for the first time. I did, I did. Um, but you know, two direct, two of the big name directors that I saw for the first time uh, in recent years. You know, like every nerd out there, I think the MCU has had some play in me. I am inevitable. Whether you l- appreciate the. The, the the idea of a uh, cinematic universe or not I mean I I personally love it because it people often hate on it because it's like it's it's just formulaic it's ruining Hollywood it's not ruining Hollywood in my opinion it, it's very much just this amazing way of keeping a story going um I don't see anything wrong with it because it's provide it's it, first of all it's getting people in the movie theaters again I, I don't see anything wrong with that and it's it, it, it's it's really just the idea of like a story, that 
is so spread out that it's 20 something movies and maybe that gets redundant after a while to some people but I, I personally believe that if there's more story to be told there's nothing wrong with making another movie especially if they're being done well the MCU is a big part um, Star Wars of course continues to be a personal affair but uh, you know going past the sci-fi genre um, well I, I guess not but uh, two movies that really inspire me from an MCU director is actually uh, Ryan Coogler uh, I think I pronounced that name right. The director of Black Panther, but also the yep. director of Creed and producer of Creed 2. Um, in terms of a soft reboot, you can quote me as saying Creed is actually one of my favorites of all time. Um, I, I I hadn't seen it in theaters. Joe showed it to me and I was blown away. And then coincidentally, Creed 2 was in theaters. So we went to go. Um, he's also 28 years old, which was pretty amazing to me. Um, mm-hmm. I'm 28, so I was like, at the time I was 27, so I was like, "Oh, wow!" You know, <laughs> you know, like that—that that was really cool to watch. So, uh, and I like that there's some young blood in there, other influencers. Well, in terms, not Hollywood, but in terms of like the goal, um, there's a YouTuber photographer videographer I watch a lot called Peter McKinnon. Uh, if anyone's into photography or vlogging or videography, I recommend looking into him because he is actually. I think one of the best out there. Uh, and if you watch the goal, you're immediately going to say, Dan, you're just like, you're really a Peter McKinnon fan, aren't you? Because it's very his style. But uh, that's that's the one that inspired the goal the most. In terms of like other stuff, um, let's see, film-wise, I, I'm always leaning towards the stuff. I mean, I, I enjoy the CGI fest as much as the next guy, uh, you know, being a comic book guy and all that. It's fun. But I really am blown away when I see something that's done uh, in camera and, and practically. Uh, I, I, I I can't ever look away from... Uh, I'm actually very happy. I'm going to get a lot of slack on the internet for this. But the new Star Wars series, going back to the old way of doing things... Um, Don't Disney worry. Star- our, last, our last episode was all about how much we love... Uh, I- I I can't hate on the Disney Star Wars. The Last Jedi, so they, we're they, already rolling in it. I, I actually love the Disney Star Wars. I like all three of them. People can send me death threats all they want, but like I think they're actually really good for cinema. Sorry. As um, I am prone to say in earlier episodes, go ahead, nerd boys, fight me in the DMs. Yeah, they're I mean, open. And Come I just, at me. I just, I, there's something very uh, rewarding about mm-hmm. taking something that was done when, you know, there was no other option and how to do it, in, in case in point, the practical effects for a sci-fi fantasy, mm-hmm. then it being done again in the prequels, but then deciding to go back and mix the two. I think that's, I mean, that's that's just the way it should be done, is that I think you can mix sci-fi and, and, and all that, and you can fix practical and CGI, and I think it's a really cool way to do it. If I had the budget, I'd be doing that all the time. I look at some of the behind-the-scenes videos of movies made today that practice that, and I think that must be so much more fun than just filming a green screen all day. Mm-hmm. Um, for actual filmmakers, you want to get you want to get your feet in the mud. You want to see something in camera that you've never seen before. You want these big sets. You want these beautiful uh, locations. You want these set pieces. The puppets are just amazing, and I think. For any director or filmmaker on these sets, it's just so much fun to watch them make it because you can see, you can tell the difference between the ones that are, love doing what they're doing versus the ones that don't, you know, just do it for the paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, as an amateur filmmaker, I have no choice. You know, everything has to be impractical, but um, 
but I think that's the thing. J.J. Abrams, you know, is probably another one. I, I, I appreciate the man's the man's uh, enthusiasm and his 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 love. You know, whether you agree with his ways of doing it or not, the man has an undeniable love for what he's doing. And I think that's just something to be admired. We're going to have an episode about J.J. Abrams at J. some J. point. Yeah. I'm reading his book right now uh, oh. that he co-wrote with David Dorst mm-hmm. called S. Uh, and I'm really starting to think that he may just be a better producer of flat text format than he is a uh, a movie person. And I feel bad saying that. But oh, boy. Oh, well, boy. It's all it's all up to whoever. It's all up to the eye. You know, it's all up to whoever wants whoever's watching it. You know, it's I'm not it's not my place to say you're wrong or vice versa. You know, it's all about who who likes it. And that's another beautiful thing about film. Mm-hmm. Um, so so, Dan, yeah. this may be the hardest question you get asked all night. Yeah. <laughs> and you can just give a one word answer or mm-hmm. you're going to elaborate us up to you. Yeah. Last Jedi or The Rise of Skywalker. Which one do I like more? Yeah. Don't don't disclose my address, all right? Cat, is he going to do it, Cat? Do you think he's going to do I, it? I think he's going to do it. I like uh, The Rise of Skywalker better than The Last Jedi. No! All right, folks, this has been We Should Do This Again Sometime <laughs> with Cat and Mark. Uh, don't forget to harass Dan at like DFOX360 last, wait, wait, on Instagram. Wait, wait, what? Wait, but I also like The Last Jedi. Before people I mean, are like, oh, you're just that. I like them both. I like cool. better, but but yeah, the, I, I, I don't think they deserve the hate they get, but oh well. I, uh, I am one of the few that went out there and was like, no, that wasn't as bad as people are making it out to be. Is it flawed? Yes. It's very flawed. I would go so far as to say very flawed. Mm, I've seen worse. I also (laughs) very stupidly tried to revisit it, and like, boy, I think I'm I'm still too mad. You you guys stay out of that one? (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to read. I watched it. I watched it the Thursday it came out, and I watched uh, it was the Thursday it came out, and that either that Saturday, and I'm probably not going to watch it for another couple of months. Um, I I think I do need to give myself some space just to remove kind of the biases and try to be very mm-hmm. as neutral as possible. Yeah. Um, it's hard because I, I get it. People form their connections with these movies, and if they don't see what they want, or I mean, everyone's got their own view on it, you know, especially Star Wars. Star Wars is probably the most divided fan base there is out there in all of film. And I, Nobody it, hates it Star Wars as much as Star Wars fans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have often been curious to just ask a non-Star Wars fan what they think of any of them, but unfortunately I can't really find one. <laughs> you know, I I feel like if you just if you just have a person that just wants to watch an action movie yeah they, they're probably really high on seven and nine which it's it's really all eye candy which on one hand it's not necessarily a bad thing as a person who grew up on like 90 percent of arnold schwarzenegger movies um, <laughs> so you kind know. of eye candy <laughs> yeah so well hey, hey. hey. um but you know it's i think watching it as a star wars fan and watching it as a just a dude yeah. i do think those are two different sort of experiences so i, I understand that i i get that 
Yeah. All right. Now to the easy guy, to uh, someone near and dear to my heart. I believe he may be near and dear to Dan's heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone far and away from Cat's heart, Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I would say that Christopher Nolan is a solid middle distance from my heart. He's not super far away, but like yeah. we can't reach each other from where we're both at in my heart. Like he's at least three time zones away at a minimum. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And like, like we probably like I would be nice to him if I saw him at a party. That's cool. Batman was cool. Batman was. Yeah. All right. Good, good so, use of Hugh Jackman, my dude. Was is that a boring sound effect? Nah, just just I I thought Hugh Jackman was particularly excellent in the Prestige. Not a boing, just a like acknowledgement of good. So he would not he would not register on your boing scale. Uh, not in that one. He's a little too much of a he's a little too much of a gaunt sociopath. Uh, He, he is a bit nuts. Now pivoting to the career of Christopher Nolan, before we get into specifically the movies that we wanted to each discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, my sort of introduction to Nolan really was the Batman series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, the, the funny thing is, as big as a fan of Batman um, that I am, I yeah. actually I did watch Batman Begins like in theaters. I was I like happened to be on like a Thanksgiving break the year, the year that it came out. Yeah, and I caught it on like a, a DVD rental, like totally by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually not even. I think I remember the movie coming out, and I was left with such a bad taste from like the uh, Batman and Robin shit that I actually forgot that it came out. It kind of like came and went. Kind of blocked. I had to like, it. Yeah, yeah, and I had to go back to it and revisit it, mm-hmm. and it was something that I really really liked. Uh, I ended up catching the prestige. Um, it actually it came out. Um, me and my friends we caught it, and it wasn't even like oh, it's a Christopher Nolan movie. Let's go see it. Yeah. We just kind of happened to hear that it was good, and we all saw it. Yeah. And it really great. Well, in my perspective, I don't know if Cat views is great or not. Um, but Dan, um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about sort of when you were initially introduced to Nolan. Yeah, and uh, what were some? What, what was the first project of Nolan you remember watching? So th- I'm a little backwards because I think a lot of people, a lot of people, will say their first Nolan was a Batman um, movie, and I and I don't blame them. That was his first big break. That was his big commercial, and it's interesting because I actually didn't start going to the theaters to see Nolan's movies until Dark Knight, but it was not the first one I ever saw of his. I was actually shown The Prestige. Uh, in school and I fell in love I was like this is amazing I didn't care who directed it at the point I just liked the movie Um, I think I may also be in love with the prestige if that helps that's fair but I but it's interesting because prestige came out after Batman begins Um, and it was and they were both on DVD at that point so I saw prestige and then I think a little while after I watched begins and then by that point Dark Knight was coming out um, so I was a little backwards with that. I, I saw Prestige, Dark, Batman Begins, and then Dark Knight. Uh, and after Dark Knight, obviously, I started to do my research into who is this man, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 discovered his other movies, and uh, and have gone to see them ever since Dark Knight. 
Um, I actually own them all on DVD. I'm actually one of the few people on this planet, I think, so that still has a big DVD collection of my generation, at least. Uh, <laughs> well, I, you know what I mean. We're we're not at, we're rarer than we used to be. We don't Dan, judge in this house. Dan, no. do you want to disclose your age? I'm 28. Okay, yeah, I lap both you guys. <laughs> uh, well, when you were saying how old you were when Batman Begins comes out, I was like, I can't. I can't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was not allowed to see it in theaters because oh, I was seven. Oh, oh no. I was uh, in college when Batman Begins came out, so yeah, there I, you go. I read the junior novelization though. And then you watch it in high school when you say school? I y- yes. <laughs> see? Yeah, 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 I did. Yeah. Um this is not something to hark on, but uh Prestige being the first one I saw was looking back, it's probably the movie that was like, I want to do this. You know what I mean? This is something I'd want to do. That was a big key part when I went to college and decided to start going into it that I would rewatch Prestige and be like, I want to like figure out how he did this, you know? So, Kat, for you, yeah, uh, I believe your introduction to Nolan was Inception and that was it. Uh, yeah. So my introduction to Christopher Nolan was I saw Inception in a senior in high school uh, science fiction class. Uh, shout out to Mr. Rilla. I'll probably send him this episode. Uh, mm. He's the reason I'm rereading Dune right now in anticipation of the forthcoming Dune movie. Uh, but so uh, I saw it in a double block period. I thought it was fine. I went home and said, hey, Dad, did you ever see those uh, Batman movies that that guy did? <laughs> and my dad is like, do you mean Batman Begins, which I like rented from Blockbuster one time and thought was not particularly interesting. And I was like, yeah, that one. So then we rewatched all those. Well, for me, it was a first watch. Uh, I've, I've been a big Batman fan most of my life. and I was not a fan of any of them. My daddy's podcast is called Hyphenation. It's the world's greatest podcast. Barack Obama approved. On Hyphenation, my daddy talks about all kinds of cool things. And sometimes I'm on the podcast too. Sometimes he has his friend Marcus on. Sometimes he stays up really late and he's tired the next day. But it's worth it. But he loves his podcast and I love his podcast. So I really want you to listen to Hyphenation. So daddy doesn't get sad. He really doesn't get sad though because he has me. Oh wait, please listen to Hyphenation. Thanks y'all. I love the podcast. So please, please, please try to join. But if you know. Perfect. Thank you. Can we hear it now? But somehow Batman Begins wound up being my favorite. Which what? Explain that. Why? Why? That? I, I mean, I think in in my opinion, it's just there's so little done with the Scarecrow generally that I hold that movie in really high regard because I am excited about a different villain getting an opportunity in the spotlight. Mm. Uh, I also feel that personally, the shadow of the Nolan Batman films has soured a lot of what the DCEU is now because they are constantly trying to figure out how to tonally fill those shoes uh, with directors and producers and films that can't yeah so for me i don't know if it's a question of like or dislike or if it is just kind of casual resentment of that thing 
one of the things that I kind of forgot about during all this is I forgot how much of a meme Inception became. Mm. Like so much of my my initial enjoyment of that movie was due to its memeitude. <laughs> Uh, you know, and those very Hans Zimmer noises and like all that weird, you know, city bending shit that they did a little bit better in Doctor Strange, but whatever. Uh, so, you know, I I get it. I also feel like The Prestige is the first movie of his where I feel like any of the female characters have any depth. And even then, I don't think it's a lot. So from that angle, uh, it's not great. But I think one of the things that I have realized about him is that he is a philosophical filmmaker above a character filmmaker. He has something that he wants you to think about, to meditate on, to grow with throughout the film. And that to him matters a little bit more than, say, the exact journey that Cobb goes through. And I don't hate that as an idea, but I do think that it is... Something that I I have watching several of his films in a row have noticed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, I really liked The Prestige. I think The Prestige might be my favorite thing he's done. And maybe it's just because I'm a big old nerd for magic. I don't know. But, mm-hmm. like, there was a lot in that movie where I was like, okay, see, this philosophical bend kind of fits the story you're trying to tell here. Mm. In a way that in other movies, I feel like while it is still done masterfully, it is not necessarily what best fits the treatment. My brother, that's when you were fallen the whole time. So you sacrificed, Robert. That's the price of a good trick. But you wouldn't know anything about that, would you? I've made sacrifices. Yes. It takes nothing to steal another man's work. It takes everything. In terms of, like, his movies in general, too, in terms of, like, you know, he usually goes for the sci-fi or modern-day vibe, too. Mm -hmm. Until Bunkirk, it was really the only one that was set in any other time period, and he really hit the nail on the head there. Well, one of the things that I really loved looking at it just psychologically is that for the whole until the very end of the movie, I was like very excited to to kind of catalog all of the instances in which Borden displayed DID, dissociative identity disorder. Yep. Uh, so then when you find out the actual reasoning, it's mm. a lot more glaringly obvious that uh, in my mind anyway, Angier has due to his trauma become a psychopath yeah uh and even this study that i read was like he gives that speech about like the wonder and because he's capable of empathizing with other people like that's evidence he's not a uh, psychopath or sociopath and i was like okay no yeah because people will say anything if they think it increases their chance of staying alive right and i think that in that moment and surrounded by hundreds of dead versions of himself mm-hmm. while Borden is still giving him time to talk. Yeah. Thinks that there is a chance that, oh, this is just another escalation of our game. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, like he's he's got a heart. Oh, he'll see. It'll be fine. He'll see. And yeah. it 
Which is also like the audience's last gasp at the character being like, is that going to happen? You know what I mean? But no, he dies. Spoiler alert for uh, a 14-year-old film. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm guessing at this point we don't have to say that. But <laughs> yeah. Just wait until we tell you about The Dark Knight Rises. Boy. Boy. It's interesting, Kat, that we, you and I have very different opinions on Nolan, obviously, and that's fine. Um, but it is interesting. I want to say Prestige is actually also my favorite Nolan movie um, by far, actually. I love all his movies, actually, but Prestige was always the one that stuck out to me the most. If I, I had think- an opportunity to transition into the Christopher Nolan segment, I was going to say, so what's all of your favorite Christopher Nolan movies and why are they the Prestige? But uh- <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, but that's the thing, like, even though Prestige is my favorite and I'm going to say my piece, it's OK. Um, ever since, well, ever since Dark Knight, I've always seen them in theaters, but ever since, uh, I think it was Interstellar, I made it a tradition to go, no, it was Rises, to go see them in IMAX, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, whether, you know, despite what people might say about the stories and the characters, which I understand, Kat, especially you're part of the female characters, even I have to admit, his female characters do not get a lot of limelight, I, I agree with that. And I'm hoping in the future that changes. You know what I mean? I would love to see him make a female-led movie that does well. Um, I'm not sure that uh, he knows uh, how to write uh, for uh, women. What? I'm not sure he knows how to write for women. And if he doesn't, I'm fine with him staying in his lane. I mean, it'd be interesting to see. But also, you know, not that it's like something to celebrate. or uh, It's not something to be like, oh, good for you. But like, at least he's not for Tenant. You know, he's getting an African-American lead. And I'm like, steps. You know, something. That's the first one of those he's had, it's isn't the first it? One he's had, and I will admit that. I will admit that. <laughs> yep. You know. Yeah. No, at least I, he's doing it. Good. Yeah, if you look at if you look at Nolan's career and his filmography, he's always a well dressed white dude. <laughs> yeah. So on seventy millimeter. From, yeah. So basically, from 1998's uh, following up yep. until I mean Dunkirk, it's yep. always quasi-dreamy, quasi-handsome white men leading the roles. Often um, Christian Bale. Often um, and, Even, like, following Memento, yep. Batman like, Begins. Uh, even even uh, Insomnia, yeah. With Al Pacino, if you want to call him a dreamy white male. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, and I was going to sort of back up also as far as yeah. him, his ability or lack thereof of, white, of writing women um yeah like even in his first film uh following which i just watched this weekend mm-hmm. um the the one the actually it was only a woman um she wasn't necessarily given much 3dness to her mm-hmm. um and actually how she kind of goes out is actually pretty wild mm-hmm. to say the least mm-hmm. um but yeah that is kind of a blind spot for nolan i feel like in the prestige sarah had to die so Olivia could live as a character. And that made me really angry. Yeah. Um, like, I really loved that movie. But I there was a moment where I was like, as soon as Olivia started getting development, I was like, oh, there's only like an hour and a half left. Uh, Sarah's going to have to get bumped if they're going to continue to to characterize this person at this level. And I really liked Olivia's character. I liked that she's like savvy. She's got like a really good grasp on marketing. She's mm-hmm. like... Listen, I know that you are like, whatever, let me help. But the other thing is that, like, she is such a 
All she does is fall in love with men and cry. Yeah. Like, even if she helps Borden uh, become kind of Angier's actual rival because of the performance aspect, Mm. she's only doing that to spite the man that she loved that didn't love her back, and she's only doing it now to help the man that she loved loves now. And I was like... Women are capable of other motivations. And I will admit, for the most part, his women characters usually are involved in some kind of romance thing. Uh, except for Dunkirk, in which there are no women. <laughs> um, they just circumnavigate that problem. Well, to be fair, though, they probably weren't on that beach at the time anyway. <laughs> and if they were, they probably had bigger problems than being hot. Yeah, although... Well, we'll get to it in a minute. Interstellar is probably one of the few exceptions to that, actually, mm. with Murph. Um, but that's a little different, obviously. Oh, Murph. Oh, Murph. But um, I'm sorry, man. What was your next point? <laughs> um, I don't know if it was necessarily next point, but thinking about some of the characters that Nolan develops mm. um, and also what his interests are, I think he's just really fascinated by people that cause chaos. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, iconically, you know, Joker and the Bane. Um, but even going back to a super early work um, in Memento, mm-hmm. um, that that complete movie is about, you know, every single person just fucking with this one guy mm-hmm. and pushing him into doing dubious shit that he more than likely probably would not have done if his wife hadn't got uh, yeah. killed or yep. that's yeah. what he thinks. Yeah. Um, even the following, uh, this following, which is his first movie, it's yep. about this guy who's a who's a stalker yep. who hooks up with a burglar and they're trying to pull off this like uh, this quasi caper, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's kind of, I think maybe that's why he doesn't necessarily um, write women well because maybe he under it's, uh, underestimates them as far as their ability to actually create chaos. Um, he he'll. He also might be being weary, though. You know, maybe uh, I will end in my and I can't say this is what it is. Cat made a point. I'll make a point, too. If you don't know how to write a character and you know you don't know how to write a character. It might be the reason why you're not writing those characters. You know what I mean? You can learn how, but you also don't want to make the mistake of pretending to know how. Because yeah. that that's going to lead to even worse scenarios. Do either of you guys watch, um, uh, well, Cat doesn't, but Dan, do you watch um, Westworld? I do not, no. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, well, Nolan's brother, he Jonathan. writes, yeah, he created West, Westworld, but with a woman creator, and the mm-hmm. women in that show are all actually really, really well, so. Okay, so um, maybe that, that, that was the point out the window. That's a good point. Yeah, so I'm guessing the Nolan bros uh, they just don't know shit about women. Which yeah, a notice lot of that they're always Nolan bros. Yeah. Every criticism of Christopher Nolan's work I've read so far has been by a, a woman or a person of color. Yeah, that's fair. It's, and it's a fair criticism. For me, the biggest issue that I, I have been discovering is that I feel personally that with a few exceptions, there's just a level of, of character depth that he's not super comfortable going to. Mm. I feel like Interstellar may be where he gets the closest to it, mm-hmm. where like Matthew McConaughey kind of has to deal with the the fact that like his daughter, his little girl daughter is like an adult ass yeah. woman now. Yeah. 
Hey, Dad. You son of a bitch. I never made one of these when you were still responding because I was so mad at you for leaving. And then when you went quiet, it seemed like I should live with that decision, and I have. But today's my birthday. And it's a special one because you told me you once told me that when you came back we might be the same age. And today I'm the age you were when you left. So it would be a real good time for you to come back. But even then I feel like that's very truncated to like make the point of space travel and the good of the world and like da 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 and I was like yeah, yeah hang on there's a big emotional payoff here why aren't we using that to make all those points you're trying to make with all the techno jargon yeah and I don't know if that's his own I'm Christopher Nolan and I'm a man and the only thing that I know how to talk about is anarchy and dudes who look good in bespoke suits or like what because I also feel like this is I assume at some point we'll probably go through the the Batman movies real quick. And my big complaint with the Batman movies is that they are too tonally similar. Uh, But I'm like watching the scene now where uh, Cobb is trying to like not convince or to convince his wife to not jump out a window. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if she jumps. That's just an excuse to further his character. If she doesn't jump, it's just an excuse for him to feel bad about him or feel better about himself because she's not a character. The relationship between them doesn't mean anything. It's all in the past, too. And it, it so it, it it very much becomes she is a a harbinger of his character, mm. which if she was cut, then we have even less about. This Leonardo DiCaprio, Cobb. DiCaprio. Uh, this version of Leo DiCaprio. Whose name I literally wrote on a sticky note and stuck on my computer because I kept forgetting it. Uh, also, just shout out to Joseph Gordon-Levitt because he was in a lot of our Ryan Johnson stuff too. And uh, way to go, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. You are doing the most all the time. <sighs> he is literally the exposition machine in that movie. Yeah, and he doesn't make it feel super heavy. No, you kind of forget. You're kind of just like, oh, yeah. Because he's know, just like- so gosh darn charming. I would eat him with a spork, politely with his consent. Oh, yeah, I, I, I get that, Cap. I, I, and that, it's a valid point. I, mean, I would be the first to admit it, too, you know? He he definitely sticks to what he knows, and it. I'd be curious to see what he would do if he did branch out, but then you're also like, oh, <laughs> Well, I uh, I right. listened to a God. No, I'm just saying if he if he found the right people to help him with it, I think that might be a direction he might want to take. Yeah, I mean, I also feel like uh, Damon Lindelof, who did uh, Watchmen, is a good example of like collaboration possibly mm-hmm. being a good way forward because Damon yeah. Lindelof is a white man and he somehow managed to write an amazing series with a black female lead. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, uh, Watchmen was definitely remarkable for pissing white people off. It was great. (laughs) My dad and I watched that together and he was like, it was one of the, the, I won't say one of the first times because that's not true, but like the first time in a while where I saw him so in tune with something that was not his experience. Yeah. Where he was Um, like, Oh my God. Like, I want to learn more about this. Like, do you still have a copy of the original comic? Like, I want to, like, literally, like, immerse myself in this universe because I want to understand and I'm aware that it is a parallel for our own. So I mm-hmm. really want to see what else I can extrapolate out. And I was like, damn. All right, Peter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, seeing the Tulsa, uh, the Tulsa Massacre, um, something I've only experienced in museums and textbooks, mm-hmm. barely, te- barely textbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing it play out in that sort of way on television, um, but then it actually having like real sort of gravitas, like mm-hmm. that was actually a remarkable achievement. And I do think you're right about the thing of sort of collaboration because mm-hmm. I think it is kind of interesting how his brother is collaborating with um, with women, not mm-hmm. only just women creator, but actual women directors. Like mm-hmm. multiple women direct multiple episodes of Westworld, and that show is is remarkable. Um, but Nolan, he typically, I'm looking at his like um, his co writers for the screenplays and people he creates uh, the stories with, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of Davids and Johns. It's not a lot of well, Marys and Sues. It's it's unfortunate. His produced his production company is run by him and his wife. I don't know where she is and all that. I will admit Wait, that too. It, I don't, is she which, a producer? Like who? Who is Mrs. Nolan? Does she has have the same last name? Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, I forget her name. But she I'm she is a producer. She is a producer, I believe. Okay, so at the same time, and like, I'm not trying to be cynical because I'm really not. Her name is Emma Thomas. I mean, it's, it's it's a different perspective than maybe we have. But like, I feel very very much so that like. There's a certain role of producing, and I have no idea if this is where she falls. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know her. I'm I am just now realizing. Oh, I'm sorry. I just googled uh, Christopher Nolan wife, and one of the first things that came up is Christopher Nolan and his dead wives talking about all the women he fridges. It happens. Uh, it was just very funny that that was like the first thing that came up. I was like, oh, yeah. Uh. But, like, I guess that kind of helps make the point uh, that I'm kind of trying to circle around is that, like, the first role of a producer is to best support a filmmaker that they think will make money. Yeah, that's fair. Um, You know, some of them are really good at championing scripts and things, but she has been producing his film since the year they got married. Yeah. Not before, not, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, and I'm not, that's no Tino shade. Like I, no, I, I guarantee that they are happy and comfy and they have a very cute kid that looks like a cupie doll, like whatever. Mazel tov. She also has produced a couple of uh, like TV Nat Geo kind of looking things. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't seem like character driven pieces are a thing that she has really any experience with Mm. and that i'm not trying to be shady at all Mm. like in that regard it just seems like that's not 
like she didn't exist as a producer before she or, married Christopher I, Nolan. I, I, get, I, I get you. Yeah, I mean, being I mean, being critical of something doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it. So, yeah. um, so it's so pointing out things that you're disappointed in isn't is it will never really be a bad thing in all honesty. So while we're talking about things I'm disappointed in, can we just talk about the fact that both Joker and Bane have the same goal for the duration of their respective films? I mean that. I don't. I mean, that's. I don't. I don't really know if that's a Nolan gaff or just a superhero, a, a super villain gaff. Like innately, every single person in Batman that's quote unquote a criminal wants to kill and take I mean, over well, the world. Take, yeah, it's a lot take of take over people, the world. A lot of pinging and brain vibes. Man, don't just Bane and. Uh... Well, Joker's like, I don't really care about being in charge. I just want everything to be fucking bananas because I'm crazy. And have I mentioned I listened to a punk rock album one time in 1996, says Christopher Nolan. Um, I was listening to an interview about him with the Joker today. And he's like, I just wanted to make him punk rock. And I was like. No, that was one thing. I saw that interview. That was one theme they played with. There were multiple things. This may have just been the way that this particular video was edited, but it really was like hammering home that like this was this was his intention here. And I was like, it just made you want, you know what it made me really want? Like instead of this weird, ridiculous Jared Leto, like gangsta with an A, possibly an A.H. Joker that we have. Where's my Sid Vicious Joker? I want him to be held together with safety pins and possibly belligerently drunk or just very weird the whole movie. Like, where's that? I want that. Anyway, uh, a digression, which is unlike me, I know. Uh, I just feel that there is more... They could have done more with Bane because a lot of Bane in comics and even to some extent in like other video game interpretations is like Bane wants people to suffer as he's suffered, but he also wants to be in charge. Whereas in this movie, and maybe it is just the particular presentation of it, it seems like he is also just trying to cause havoc and raise a wreck and smash shit up. To, and to, like to, to be fair on the Bane front though, in comparison to other Banes we had gotten in the past. Yeah. It was a step up. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, I think in pop senses. And sort of pop yeah, and pop culture beyond like if you don't really go into like the comics and stuff, you really only focus on let's say like the like I was talking about it before, like the terrible um Batman and Robin movie. And even if you go to even Batman the animated series, mm-hmm. like he's literally just a muscle bound thug that just wants okay. to break people. But do I want a mindless band to carry me around when I invariably cosplay that version of Poison Ivy? Yeah. And that's um, fine. But is that interesting for two and a half hours though? I mean, no, but I also have never felt, and this may just be the fact that I'm a little bit more of like an OG Batman villain person. And Bane kind of was introduced a little bit later in the game. Uh, I've never felt that he had enough anything to carry a two and a half hour movie. I mean, I, I, no, go ahead. I was going to say, like, 
in a lot of ways, I actually, I like Bane in this better than Joker and Dark Knight. Like, I feel... I'm gonna let you say that, because as a small woman who cosplays the Joker and also wrote a scathing review of this year's Joker movie, I'm afraid to say anything bad against him. Oh, he, I mean, well, that just we live Joker. in a society with men, so... Yeah. But, I don't know if you've heard, but we live in a society. I know. It's, it's a shitty one. But, and by uh, acknowledging that there is a society, that is inherently commentary, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you were saying, like, like Bane as, or, or Tom Hardy's Bane as opposed to Heath's uh, Joker in the movie. Well, I don't want to necessarily say as opposed to, but yeah. Yeah. I do think that there's, I find myself, even currently now, like, I find myself liking his portrayal of Bane just sort of more, not necessarily from, like, an actor's perspective, but just from, like, this is a guy who's clearly set on really just sort of ravishing Batman yeah. um, in, in more ways than one. And, and, and I, I, yeah, I feel like his shit is just a little more... Yeah. A little more concentrated than Joker's, where Joker was just sort of overall chaos. But Bane is like, I really want to just destroy Batman in Gotham City. Let me do this thing. Um, So I kind of gravitated toward that more. Yeah, no, I I feel that. Uh, I also, again, afraid to say anything bad about the Joker as a character or an ideal. Uh, But I remember seeing The Dark Knight probably 2015 that was the first time i saw it and like i saw it at home i know i didn't see it in a theater but we have a decent home theater set up and i think dan you can attest to that mm-hmm. and i just remember thinking this won an oscar he won an oscar yeah yeah and i don't know that it felt super deserved mm. whenever joker came out i knew um, oh are we talking about joker or dark knight Dark Knight. Oh, okay. oh, oh! You don't think he, you don't think he let us deserve that? I mean, I don't know what he was up against that year. Ooh, that, that's a there, hot, there's that that's a hot take, too. girl. That there's that <laughs> debate about whether his death influenced people's love of him. Uh, I thought that it was a really good performance. I thought it deserved a nomination. I just remember, even as like a an eighteen year old, and I revisited it earlier this year, being like, I don't know. Like, it's, I think there's two sort of different things. The point where Dan was saying his death sort of sparked something in people. Mm-hmm. If I think you can make the argument that it sparked him actually winning the award, especially because no person doing anything in comic book movies was ever nominated for right. a fucking thing. Right. I think his career, I, I don't think his career necessarily was elevated by his death because, like, people love, like, Brokeback Mountain and 10 Things I Hate About You even before Dark Knight. But I, 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 do I do think believe, that. Yeah, sorry. No, I do think that his death did did get him the win. Uh, I'm literally trying to scroll back on Google to find out. Uh, hang on, best supporting actor. That would have been 2009. 2008 was the year Dark Knight was. Right. So it was the 2009 Oscars. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Um, I mean, can I throw out my two cents about it? Yeah, by all means. Uh, and and let's just keep it on Dark Knight and Rises. Let's just forget about Begins for a minute, I guess. Um, because you had mentioned T- Bane and, and Batman, and we've heard our thoughts on both. And, I mean, 
I, I fully acknowledge this, and Cat, you 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 don't want to say it. I'm gonna say it. I actually don't like the character as the joke of the Joker. Come oh my god, me. say it again. I don't like the character. Add the boing there if you're adding it anywhere. My god. Like, hey, I mean, like whatever. People can hate me for that, but you know what? It, it never. It was never something that drew my attention. It, it's it's fine. I get the appeal, I guess, but it was never like something that I was like. That's the greatest villain ever made. No. I hope you know that I am, like, tearing up actively because I have been banging on this gong for years so and I have consistently I'll, I'll, been discredited I, I, for this. But here's the other side of that, Kath, because I'll give you that one. Heath is probably the only performance I've ever seen that I enjoyed the Joker. And the reason for that was because it was not, and people will disagree with me on this too, it was not made for the fanboys of the Joker. It was smarter than that. More work was put into it, and it wasn't as easy as it had been or would be later. Except that I think that, in in my mind, the fanboys of the Joker, in the degree that they exist now, only started to exist in a post-Dark Knight world. Uh, Because then Joker went from the the clown to... Well, you don't understand. Like, he's anti-society, and I don't know if you've heard, but we live in a society, and like... Which is also, by the yeah. way, when I completely backed out of the Batman fandom outside of fair, what fair. I cosplay. Now, because it got to the point where I was so tired of being told I didn't understand. Yeah. Like, you have to understand. Like, I, I just due to timing was unable to minor in philosophy, but I was damn yeah. close. Yeah. Like, hi, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think he gives an amazing performance. I don't think he's a good joker. To me, those are not mutually exclusive sentences. Uh, that said, yeah. uh, I'm looking at the best supporting actor perf- ones for uh, that same year, and I have to say, uh, maybe he was the best that year. Well, <laughs> hold on. Before, so basically, he beat out Josh Brolin, Robert Downey Jr., Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Michael Shannon. Yeah. I would say of these actors, I mean, I think in totality. The only actor that's probably better is Philip Seymour Hoffman. But, but this is so also the year in Bruges came out, and I'm kind of salty as shit, and Bruges doesn't have any acting noms. Yeah. Um, what the fuck? Go to hell, 2009. You were a shitty year for me personally, and you're a shitty year for the Oscars. So, like like I said, I, I've never been someone who gravitates towards the character of the Joker, and I've never been someone that thought that the character was anything bigger or less than other villains that were that had come before or after him. I think there are better villains out there. I think for me, just for me, and I understand people's and maybe I agree with Kat actually. Maybe that means that I don't like him as the Joker because I don't like the character of the Joker. But in The Dark Knight, I enjoy the Joker from two different aspects. I enjoyed the work that was put in from Nolan and and Heath. In a performance, whether you want to call it the Joker or not, there's no denying it's a good performance. And I think, and yes, maybe it caused some bad because that cat's right. At that point, the fanboys start to gravitate towards the character. But I don't blame Nolan or 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 Heath for that because I think it's way smarter than they will ever be. Um, I think it's more thought out and more fleshed than anything they could ever come up with or anything they could relate to. Um, I think the movie is. The one strength no one has, whether it's character or not, 
is painstakingly like is painting out his plots and and mm-hmm. and 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 his way of uh, showing, not telling, in some capacities. So I think living in a post nine eleven world, yeah. I do think it's it was kind of impossible to bring like uh, the Jack Nicholson. Um, Oh, sorry, Jack Nicholson, um, the Batman the animated series version, like bringing that to to 2008, like that would have felt like really out of place. Right. Um, so I do, I do, I think we all agree that it, whenever they created this new Joker, and again going back to Nolan being like this guy who really loves people that create anarchy in some way, like merging the two of pivoting away from this standard definition of the Joker, but then also using him as a device to tell this larger story about people, um, even though the results of it kind of missed the mark and play into like a territory that is very uncomfortable to kind of think about, I think the idea and where he actually wanted to go is at least in itself kind of remarkable even though everything after the execution was not what we all really wanted. And so I think that's kind of why Dan is someone who can say, I do kind of like what they did in this particular movie, anything before and after, I don't need that. Um, so I can I can definitely see both sides of that coin. Because yeah. we were talking also about Tom Hardy and Bane uh, into Rises. And again, I'm looking at it from an acting and a uh, filmmaking standpoint. I watch Rises and I watch Dark Knight and I look at them very interesting. And whether you like one or the other better, I, it's not my place to say. One thing I appreciate about Tom Hardy's Bane was not only one making it a little different. I, I'll never like I'll never badmouth an actor for trying something different, whether it works or not, is another story entirely. I think one thing I really appreciated was, you know, for the most part, people were on high after the Dark Knight. They were like, "There's no way this can top it. There's no way Tom mm-hmm. Hardy's going to be a better villain." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, where is that man? Speak of the devil, and he shall appear. What the hell is going on? Our plan is proceeding as expected. Oh, really? Do I look like I'm running Wayne Enterprises right now? You're hit on the stock exchange. It didn't work, my friend. And now you have my construction crews going around the city at 24 hours a day. How exactly? Is that supposed to help my company absorb Wayne's? Leave us. No, you stay here. I'm in charge. Do you feel in charge? I've paid you a small fortune. And this gives you power over me? What is this? Your money and infrastructure have been important. Till now, I've Gotham's reckoning. Here to end the borrowed time you've all been living on. Pure, pure evil. I'm necessary evil. And I think the one thing I have to say to Nolan and uh, Hardy was kudos for them for not trying to make him a better villain, just making him the villain he was. Um, that's he is a tr- very credible th- threat. Yeah, and, and, and I think the thing I appreciate about their team there and Heath and Nolan's team there is that there was never an idea of, like, we're going to one-up one up the last thing we did in the villain in the movie. 
it was always we're going to make this stand on its own two feet, even though it's part of a trilogy. As a filmmaker of series, you're always going to be tempted to 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 one up what you did last time. One thing I admired about the Dark Knight trilogy was there was never a set plan of making three movies. He was he was always saying this is its own thing. Yes, it's connected, but like there was never a plan to like after Batman began until it was decided, and there was no plan for Rises until it was decided. So I think the going the idea of going in fresh and making the villain you want for the movie was a better way of handling it than uh than trying to make him the next big thing that Heath Ledger was. I think they stand they both stand there on two feet. There's no denying, you know, in pop culture, you Heath Ledger's Joker all the time and we make fun of it, but we also and, and it's ingrained in our brains is this portrayal. And we also take Tom Hardy's Bane and like I did in this podcast earlier, hello, like whether we make fun of it or not, it's universally recognized now as, oh, that's Bane. Um, and and whether that's something you enjoyed or not, it, it stuck. And I think that's the telltale sign of some kind of work at play there that goes a little above other comic book movies or anything else that you can say of, in filmmaking, where it's like they put in enough work that whether we like it or not, we know what they're talking about, or we know what that is. Go ahead, Kat. Tom Hardy is acting his tuchus off, mm-hmm. considering that he cannot act at all with, I would say, like the bottom, I don't know, half of his face. That's why no one keeps putting him in a mask. <sighs> I love Tom Hardy. I would hit him with a truck if he'd let me. A truck full of dicks. Hey, I feel in my mind, if I see that somebody has a, this is so bad. Uh, If I go on a date with somebody and see that they have a poster of uh, Heath Ledger's Joker, I leave. I I say, thanks. Thanks for a nice evening. Uh, This has been great. Don't call me. I'll call you. Uh, And we, we uh, quietly make our escape uh, through the gift shop because a lot of people, I think, And this may be part of the beauty of that performance. Read so much more into that character than is there. Mm. In terms of like, oh, this person aligns with me. As a matter of fact, there's very little character because there's no backstory. We don't know who he is. He's a force. He's a plot device. He's not a... But the fact that you can start to say, yeah, I relate to that is a red flag. Kat's actually right about that one. Yeah, and also the number of times where people are like, I think he's right. And I'm like... Okay, well, I guess just screw all disabled people, people who are different than you, like literally anything, because, yeah. Y- yeah. <laughs> cool. I think the, the last point to make, um, I guess, about the Dark Knight trilogy before we kind of wrap up Nolan's career, um, I think even the... I do think that we talked a little bit about... Um, the sort of importance of, or or the 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 effects of Bane and Joker, I think this is the reason that this these two movies, in particular Dark Knight, mm-hmm. is is pretty important to you know pop culture and even just sort of movie making, is because this is I think the smartest thing that they kind of realized the Nolan brothers was that the villain kind of has to be more important or at least more attention grabbing than the heroes. Oh, you think darkness is your ally? You merely adopted the dark. 
I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was already a man. By then it was nothing to me but blind. The shadows betray you because they belong to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, we can quote Joker and Bane, and whether we're joking or being serious, and hopefully we're not very serious, but mm-hmm. people, people can still quote these men, but mm-hmm. how many times do you really see people quoting anything in all three movies that the Batman has said? The right. only time we really make fun of him is when he does a terrible, where's the trigger voice? Where like, is she? Where's the trigger? Where is it? Never give it to an ordinary citizen. Where is it? Where's the trigger? Where is it? Where is it? Yeah, and even you can even sort of see that play out with Thanos. How they MCU really understood that Thanos has to be this gargantuan person that it's he has to in some ways be better on every level than all the Avengers. Mm-hmm. And these are characters that we love for like the 10 years up to this point, but we have to find someone who is either they're equal or a little bit better than them. Yeah. Um, even one of the things that I think is so amazing about the MCU is even Thanos, who doesn't know who any of the Avengers are, mm-hmm. is somehow an equal adversary to the one that was killed at the beginning of Endgame. You know, when she uh scarlet witch scarlet witch comes up to him yeah. and she says you took everything from me and he says i don't even know who you are it's like such a like yeah like he doesn't care he gives yeah. zero fucks um because we because we've already broken down uh these batman movies a lot yeah. i'll just say the funny thing is i think the for me i can kind of make differences between saying the best and my favorite mm-hmm. like like if you ask me who's the better rapper obviously biggie is the better rapper but tupac mm-hmm. is probably my my favorite of the two artists mm-hmm. um, i i do think that yeah i do think that prestige is probably the best of nolan mm-hmm. um but for me dark knight rise is my personal nolan favorite Mm-hmm. Um, before we get out of here and kind of bring it all in a nice bow, um, actually, I do want to ask this question because other than Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, mm-hmm. these are the only two movies where time is not really a central sort of plot device or mm-hmm. storytelling device. Mm-hmm. Do you guys think Nolan leans a bit too much on the concept of time? I think that he leans a lot on time and also on memory. And in my mind, in not using time and having as much of a ticking clock element in these, although they always culminate in a ticking clock element, Mm -hmm. uh, I feel that he depends a lot on memory, especially for Batman as a character to have any development. Um. You know, because we're constantly flashing back to his parents' death, that feeling of being alone in that pit with those bats, like, yeah. whatever, whatever. I, um, it, it, to me, I, I find that tropey as well. Uh, and I feel that Nolan has created his own set of tropes because they are the area in which he likes to work. 
Uh, I don't know if that's a good or a bad or an indifferent, uh, but it is very much, I think, as I kind of said about maybe the fact that he writes mostly men, mostly white men, it's the area in which he is comfortable. And thusly, it is the area in which he kind of hangs his hat. I think when he, when he pulls it off, like, um, following, I thought following was really, really good. I, I like following a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Memento, he does it well, and the, the, the ending actually does pay off pretty significantly well. But there's times when the time jumps, it, it really kind of isn't necessary. Like, he, he time jumps too a bit too much in Memento. Mm-hmm. Particularly in the middle part where it's kind of like, well, we, we kind of need to kind of get this going. Like, yeah. there's a couple of time jumps that, to be frank, like, they weren't really necessary or important. Um, do you, Dan, do you think that, um, do you think, uh, I'm actually on the side of, he does use time in a very interesting way. Yeah. Um, but if it's kind of, if it's kind of overdone, um, even at Dunkirk, I was like, I was super confused in the first, like, the, I guess, like, the first 15 minutes of Dunkirk because it was, like, they they time jumped pretty quickly with, like, no real explanation. And it took me kind of a while to, like, kind of get my bearings in Dunkirk, which I kind of think that's kind of the whole overall point of Dunkirk. Um, But, Dan, do you think that time, do you think Nolan, he uses time well, or do you think it's kind of, like, something that, is a bit overdone right now. I, I would agree that it is a, a, a trope of his. Uh, I don't deny that at all, and I think Kat's right that he, he does keep to his tropes. I can only speak as myself, a, a white man. <laughs> I get what I'm I... I, white man. I, I can't deny what I am. I under, I, and I do agree with Kat's points, and it's actually, it's actually quite refreshing to hear different perspectives on it, because I... You know, maybe I don't listen to it as much as I should, you know. Um, so I appreciate that. But I also look at it from a different perspective, you know. I, I, on my perspective, I don't even look at it as that. I look at it as a filmmaker. And, and the devices we use. Uh, I, I, I almost don't watch Nolan movies as an audience member. I watch it as a filmmaker. And that's why I like them so much. And that's not something I've talked about too much. But in terms of the time question, I think it's a very fascinating uh device used in his movies for script writing um and i wish i could handle it in my script writing i it's actually i've tried it once and it's exhausting Uh, (laughs) like to keep track of it it's exhausting so i actually give him kudos for being able sometimes at least to keep track of it i don't think it's used equally as well in each movie um i think i think uh following and memento handled it pretty well i think prestige handles it very well I think Batman Begins actually uses it pretty well. I would agree. Uh, I agree with all those. I agree with and all those. I think Interstellar and, and Inception kind of have to use them. And therefore, I don't really look at it as like where they used well. It's just it's part of the plot, you know. But I kind of they're not my uh, to be honest, two of his biggest movies are not my favorite when he uses time. Uh, those are not two of my favorite uses of his time, mm-hmm. uh, his time technique. Dunkirk is a little different. Um, Dunkirk is the first time I think he did it so that he could keep the audience's attention. 
and not it, that it was part of the plot because it clearly wasn't part of the plot. That's not how World War II happened. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of a tension-building clock device, which I get he uses all the time, but if he's going to make this World War II pick, if he wants to play to what his strength is, make the money that he does and, and play in his area of like expertise, I actually think Dunkirk actually uses it pretty effectively. I get that it's a little confusing. I was confused too. Um, but I think it would be so much worse off if he hadn't done that. Because then, then let's let's be honest, if that movie was just going in chronological order and it wasn't jumping back and forth and playing with, like, how's it all going to connect, would the movie be that exciting? I don't know. You can, I mean, yeah, you can make the same point, really, about Memento. Like, if you tell Memento in a linear sort of story, yeah. um, especially the um, the ending of the movie, is definitely not as effective. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. I, I, I look at it, like I said, I look at Nolan movies usually. I It's probably one of the few movies where I'm able to go in there and look at it from a filmmaking perspective and take notes rather than an audience perspective, which I guess is kind of dangerous sometimes, you know. Um, you want to be able to balance it both, I suppose. But I, I look at it more from the technical, the creative the 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 visual standpoint which is undeniably where his strength is but you know maybe character is something that could use a little more work diversity is something that could definitely use a little more work um but yeah that's my opinion on time you know i i think there are certain movies where it works better than others are you guys i know my answer i'm and i hope it does come out it's supposed to come out the weekend of my birthday um, I really hope Tenet comes out. Like I Itch. am excited. Um, John David Washington is actually a really, really good actor. He was really good in Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. Um, he's probably one of the only good parts of Ballers. <laughs> um, are you guys excited for Tenet? Do you think it will be maybe much ado about nothing? What do you guys thoughts on Tenet? Cat, you first, please. Uh. <laughs> So I my my feelings on Tenet are complicated. So for starters, I saw Rise of Skywalker in IMAX on opening night, and uh, it was preempted by uh, the 20 minute prologue to Tenet, and then also an additional 30 minutes of ads. So you were a little and I'll be honest, despite my best efforts, that has created a lot of. I would say I won't say like I don't wish it ill, but like it's it's definitely a little bit in a hole starting out for me. Uh, what I will say, uh, and I, I see this as, as completely and inarguable at this point, is that it is, I felt, probably the best use of the IMAX format I have seen outside of like a themed experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was watching it in this theater and I was like, I feel like like it takes place largely in an orchestra, like a symphony orchestra hall. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I feel like I could, f- like, at one point they, the am- angle kind of turns in a very Christopher Nolan-y way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, I feel like I could fall into the middle of this. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I see where this is. I feel where this is. Uh, I will maybe check it out in IMAX. I'm poor. Uh, I mean, I don't know if IMAX is going to be a thing in mid-July. Fortunately, I'm fairly low on expenses as well. But, like, I don't know that I'm going to be dropping, you know, 26 to $30 to see a movie in 70 millimeter or whatever. It's usually 70 millimeter, right? IMAX. 
nonsense because you know i just don't know that i'll have the budget but i am gonna try and check it out in theaters because i'll i'll be honest even though i was like oh my god i didn't need this 20 minute thing in front of this other movie that i also paid a lot of money to see i i was intrigued by the existence of the prologue and i'll be interested to see what the movie kind of does with that mm-hmm. also not for nothing i i agree that uh the actor whose name i can never remember because i'm the worst at names and the longer this podcast goes on the more you'll know that john david washington john david washington uh i really love i'm also excited uh for a vehicle for twilight guy because he's in the Our trailer passing. yeah i'm passing yeah. Um, actually you should i think you should be encouraged because other than other than i would say good time he's actually picking like a really a lot of really good movies to actually do for himself the Um, the chunks of the lighthouse i have been able to watch i have really really enjoyed mm -hmm. uh that said due to a bunch of my own uh body dysphoria issues and issues with uh depictions of certain bodily functions i've really struggled to get through the lighthouse uh, but the, the chunks that I have watched, I have really enjoyed. Uh, and I think that he is excellent in that. So I, I am hoping that this is the start of the the RPATS renaissance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm always pumped for the next Nolan movie. I'm, I'm pretty... I'm pretty easy when it comes to that, I won't lie. I, I am a Nolan fan. I am a Nolan fan, boy. I can't deny that. That's why but you're a, here. But a part of that also... Co- what? That's why you're here. Yeah. But a part of that also comes from the tradition and the friends that I've built watching them. I've gone to IMAX theaters to see Rises, Interstellar, and Dunkirk. And, you know, I understand the budget part, but I I always put some money aside for it because that's what I want to see it in. You know, the fact of the matter is, is with every movie, he's experimenting and trying new things with IMAX cameras that really no one else has done. Um in the case of Dunkirk, I saw that in IMAX, and I was I couldn't breathe by the end, and that was the point. It was a experience, you know. It was an experience you don't get in film very often. And me being me, I knew that everything I was watching in ninety nine percent of the capacity had actually been filmed. And going back to our original point at the beginning of the podcast, that's what I enjoy in movies. I enjoy it when I can see that. This is real. You know, the fact that he was mounting, I don't know how expensive they are, IMAX cameras onto jet fires and and filming them on the wing was, it's insane. But God, does it look good. And God, is it exciting. And the filmmaker in me, maybe not the audience member, the filmmaker in me is just applauding this man because, yes, maybe he's not the best at every part of it. But in terms of filmmaking, in terms of, the actual job it is to film in the movie the 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 man does things that no one else is doing you know Mm -hmm. and uh in practicality and making it mostly an imax movie that's harder than it sounds i think the only movies that have ever been filmed entirely in imax are infinity war and endgame but you gotta think a lot of that screen screen a lot of that's not there yeah i think dunkirk is in second place to those and that's all real you know, you think about that, and it's like... His devotion to practical effects is super admirable. Yeah, I mean, and I know that's not everything. Of course it's not, you know, but they're enjoyable, they're beautiful to look at, and, and from a filmmaking aspect, I applaud the man. 
One thing I'm always excited about to answer your question about Tenant, I'm actually excited when a Nolan movie comes out and you see new faces in his cast. One thing we didn't talk about, he's very well known for playing with people. He has an he has a ensemble people he likes to work with. Um, that follows through in this movie a little bit, but I enjoy uh, the new faces um, in the movie. I also enjoy seeing uh, uh, what's the name. Um, Oh, Kenneth Branagh coming back because he's worked with Branagh before um, and he's playing the villain. And I think that's really cool. Um, Give Kenneth Branagh more scenery to chew. Mm -hmm. And I also think in terms of a visual and exciting standpoint, uh, a spy kind of thriller movie that he's making. We've seen that before in Inception. And, you know, I, I like uh the ride that I'll call it the ride that Inception was is another movie where I couldn't like I was blown away. I was like, this is intense. This is great. You know, it's fun to watch. You go to the movies and at least you have fun like being immersed in it. And I think Tenet kind of plays to that strength. Yes. Can I ask just like one probably really dumb question? Is this supposed to take place in the same universe as Inception? I don't know. Because there no seems, I mean, because uh, as gonna soon as that, that as soon as that prologue came out, like all of film Twitter was like, Bwah! at the same time, and I, I was like, I haven't uh, seen the prologue, so I don't know. I, I, that's the thing too. The first Nolan trailer, in keeping with his traditions, doesn't usually re- re- reveal too much, so I don't know much about it. I'm kind of going in, but and usually by now, there'd probably be another trailer. I think because of Corona. He hasn't released it because they probably don't know if they're going to be able to release it in time. Yeah. You know, but I that's mean, I, I do appreciate uh, Never Say Die or whatever. Uh, yeah, Never Say Die. Like at the very, very beginning of this being like, yeah, no, we need another year. Yep. Sorry. Mm-hmm. No, it's 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 the coronavirus. It's definitely not that this is a bad movie. It's us. Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> bye. Like, yeah. You know, a funny thing about Dark Knight Rises. So <laughs> they were shooting it in Pittsburgh, um, which is like an hour and like 10 hour, 15 minutes, like away from where I went to, to school at. Mm. They, they shot it the year that I actually I graduated that summer. And I was like, I was in and out of Pittsburgh a lot that summer because I was like seeing someone up there or whatever. And it's this movie. I think maybe that's probably why I like this movie because I kind of feel like a connection to the movie. Like the scene where um, Batman and Bane fight on the courthouse steps. Mm-hmm. The next, the next time you look at that movie, kind of if you look at that particular scene, if you notice how super bright it is, mm. it's because they're trying to film a winter scene in the beginning of summer. Yeah. So, so I always kind of, I always like kind of took to that. And it's funny because another thing, I had a group of friends actually try to audition to be a part of like the um, mm-hmm. the uh, the football crowd. So mm-hmm. the stadium is actually where the Pittsburgh Steelers play football, mm-hmm. and so they were auditioning groups of people. And so it was like, I think eight of them went. It was like. My two, it was two black dudes. It was um, a Middle Eastern dude, like an Indian dude, like a white girl, and like a couple like it was. It was a it was a mixing of people. Why and am so, I scared? So they auditioned for it, and 
they didn't get hired because they weren't diverse enough. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, no. Yo, yo, they told me that shit. I'm sorry. They needed at least one more girl. <laughs> oh, they told me that shit when they came back. Yo, I was dying. <laughs> well, like that just literally caused me to like basically down my wine. I was like, "You're shitting me, right?" Like, I wish they were lying about that, man. That shit was funny. Yike! I feel like saying you're too diverse is like the equivalent of being like, "No, no, like you're too, you're too talented for a movie. Like you got to do theater. Like you know when it's like not actually what they mean." Yeah. Oh man! So shout out to <laughs> shout out to the Mark Robs college friends for trying to make the uh, average number of people of color in a Nolan movie even slightly higher. Yo, yo if I would have saw these motherfuckers in this damn movie, I would have shit in the movie theater. <laughs> yo, oh my god! But I think. Yeah, no, so Tenet would be the first Nolan movie I would see in theaters if I if this if I were to go see this when it came out. Yeah. This would be I guess my shit. I saw it maybe about six one. I know that so uh the Coolidge Corner Theater, which is a great theater up in Boston area, uh was going to be showing Dunkirk for like a night with like a, a chat with like a Harvard historian, I think. Nice. But, you know, someone who, like, knows a lot about the history of that particular yeah. period. And I really wanted to go see that uh, yeah. because I thought it sounded super dope. Yeah. Uh, and then COVID-19 yeah. happened and oh. uh, we we can't have that anymore. So yeah. I hope that they do that again because I have only seen chunks of Dunkirk. Uh, and it seems like something that I need to experience in a theater, which is it, why it I opted not to finish made. it. It was 100% made for the big screen. Uh, I'll admit that. So I I am excited to hopefully be able to see that someday, but I know that's not the same as seeing it first run. Uh, and I I would go see Tenet. I have a feeling just as a like person who, for some reason, the internet trusts me to write things. Uh, except that no one reads them, but that's fine. Uh, I I will probably get invited to this one. Oh, nice. uh, mostly because I'm. Largely focused grouped as token woman, and uh, <laughs> I find that a lot of movies that generally maybe don't have their token women are like, "Hey, come tell other women this movie's good, yeah." Uh, so I don't know. I'll I'll probably go. No. One thing I also enjoy about his movies, besides Dark Knight, obviously, is that you you usually unless this theory about Inception is correct. It's kind of refreshing to go and get a standalone piece. You know, so many of these big blockbusters are part of a franchise or are part of a series of films. And it's just kind of nice to go to a one and done. You know, you go yeah. in, you watch, you, you leave, and you let your imagination take its course with the rest of it. You don't see that a lot with those kind of size of movies, you know. Yeah. Nolan's probably one of the few indie directors that has his name in the blockbuster franchise like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I will. I bad. No, no, it's just something I appreciate. No, I, I actually really feel that, and I do like that. 
a lot of his film like I left the prestige with a lot of questions, but not questions that I felt that the movie failed to answer, if that makes sense. It does. You know, it never felt to me like this was a sequel pitch. Mm. You know, it it feels like he is telling the stories that he wants to tell. And perhaps in the case of the Batman movies, which I would make an argument for, is like a lot of comic arcs, even when they are finished, aren't Mm -hmm. finished. Yeah. Uh, and I think that he really heavily homages that in in the films that he makes. Yeah. I also feel like he just really wanted to like fly Christian Bale to Florence and be like sit in this cafe table yeah. and look adorable. Please, yeah. thanks. Um, there's some there's something nice in filmmaking that isn't seen very more is that if it is enough of an ending and it is an ending that maybe you can let your imagination take the rest. You know, you can actually mm-hmm. ask questions yourself, which is we've established is probably something Nolan is most known for is making you think a little bit, which isn't always a great thing, but can be a good thing as an audience member too. A little thinking isn't a bad thing. Um, and I always appreciated leaving the theater being like, okay, let me, let me, let me, let me imagine, let me connect the dots. Prestige my, is my- one- my immediate thought after finishing Prestige, and I sent this to you last night, was like, how many dead Angiers oh. do you think there are? And, and Kat, that's interesting, too, because Prestige is one of the only movies I can say this about. I've watched it a bunch of times, like more times than I can count. The DVD is probably going to go someday. But I always <laughs> watch that movie and le- and end it like finding something different to ask myself or noticing something mm-hmm. I had never noticed before. And you brought that up. I had never even thought of that before. Had he made it to his 100 count? Were there a hundred bodies in there? That's freaking terrifying. Not to mention the bubble that blows at the end of the movie. Like, is he still alive in that tank? Like, there's little things that are so detailed woven that I, I can't help but watch that movie and every time and be like, I'm watching it for the first time because I'm noticing something I didn't notice before. Yeah. And make a movie of that, like, that caliber, that ability. You know, I understand for every focus for every audience member it's not going to hit the mark but it, you can't say that the work hasn't been done you know like mm-hmm. there's some level of thought going into every movie he makes and for the most part that is just like it's not lazy you know it's not like we're doing this just to make a buck you can see that he likes doing it and and i can't help but as a filmmaker to be like i appreciate that you know mm-hmm. Do I think he maybe once should like ask like surround himself with people that can help him branch into new areas Absolutely. I actually did that myself with the last two alter egos. We, we, the original alter egos were all male, uh, like we were all male leads. And then we went into an all female cast while still making it a soft reboot. But we also made sure we could handle it so that it wasn't like two white guys writing females and actually asked our actresses to help us write it, you know, make yeah. sure it works. There are ways that you can make it work, even if it's not in your comfort zone. Um, and I hope he does do that. I hope he do, I And I hope with uh, this with Tenant, you know, I know it's not a female-led movie, but at least he's getting an African American to lead the movie. And I mean, I, a I step hope it is a step. That. A step is a step, and I hope it. I hope it. He pulls it off, and I hope it's good. You know, um, I, I I do truly believe. People often say there's no new ideas in Hollywood. To an extent, that's true. I also think that a lot of people in Hollywood aren't willing to try new things um, or aren't willing to try little things that might actually be able to lead to new ideas, you know? 
Um, yeah. There's a formula in place that a lot of people like to keep to, and I understand that. If it works, it works, but I'm my hope is that people continue to uh, explore new ideas and new ways of telling stories. This has been Dan Fox joining Kat and Mark on We Should Do This Again Sometime. Dan Fox, local indie director of the Alter Ego series, the Tom series, Sunshine Inn, Gable, which is available on his YouTube, The Goal, which is also available on YouTube, and of course, a photographer that you can find over at dfox360 on Instagram. Find Kat at Kat Chinetti on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram. Find Marcus at Show and Mad Love on Twitter and Instagram. S-H-O-I-N-M-A-D-L-O-V. Please join our Facebook group at We Should Do This Again Sometime and follow us on Twitter at Kat, K-A-T, and Mark, M-A-R-C. Read us at catseesmovies.tumblr.com and themarkrob, T-H-E-M-A-R-C-R-O-B.wordpress.com. Be sure to tip your waitress at Catherine Chinetti on Venmo. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenley under Hyphen Podcast Group in conjunction with It's Like a Podcast or whatever. Thanks again for listening. We should do this again sometime.